Thank you for listening to the Institute of World Politics podcast. To learn more about our graduate programs in national security, international affairs, and intelligence, or to support our work in educating future leaders, please visit www.iwp.edu. All right, good evening. Thank you for watching this virtual lecture event hosted by the Institute of World Politics. For those of you who are new, IWP is a graduate school of national security and international affairs. We have five master's degree programs, 18 certificates of study, and a new doctoral program. We also offer the opportunity to take a single course without having to pay an entire semester's worth of tuition costs. One can also audit such a course at a much less cost. If you're interested in learning more about us, please visit iwp.edu. This evening, I will begin by introducing our moderator, Professor Hashem Meki, who will then introduce the panelists. Professor Meki has taught Arabic language, culture, and Middle East media at IWP since 2012. He's the owner of Bridge Language Solutions, providing an array of language translation, interpretation, and teaching services to the Washington, D.C. metropolitan area and the founder of Keeley Global, a nonprofit organization that promotes education, health, and economic empowerment in Sudan and the Republic of South Sudan. He also teaches Arabic to federal employees and professionals at the National Nuclear Security Administration at the Department of Energy. Professor Meki volunteers with the IWP Center for Human Rights and International Affairs by providing Arabic translations and strategic cultural perspectives on North Africa and the Middle East. Professor Meki previously worked with the Center for Strategic and International Studies and served on the board of Voices of Sudan, a nonprofit based in Washington, DC. He holds a bachelor's degree in both political science and international studies from the City College of New York and a master of arts in strategic studies and international politics from IWP. Professor Meki, the floor is yours. Uh, thank you so much, uh, Hannah, for this uh... A warm uh, introduction, and uh, I welcome uh, my uh, uh, guests, the panelists, and I will start with uh, giving a brief talk about this uh, African Strategic uh, Forum, which is uh, which has started in two, uh, 2019, end of 2019, and the purpose is just to bring uh, thoughtful uh, leaders and thinkers, just like my uh, guests that we have today. And let me start uh, first of all talking a little about the continent. Uh, of course, our audience thank you for being online watching this and for staying healthy and being safe okay uh, africa most of you might know africa so africa uh is the second largest in terms of uh, uh, size uh right after asia it is also the most uh, populous uh, continent uh right uh, close to uh, china and other countries uh, and it has about 16 percent of world uh, population Economy-wise, uh, Africa is about $7.16 trillion. Uh, uh, so that's the big, big, big economy that we need to uh, um, uh, make a note of. Uh, it is also in terms of countries, it's about uh, 54 different countries, South Sudan being the youngest uh, country. Uh, in terms of youth, uh, it has the youngest youth uh, so far. With that, I will introduce my panelists, and first I will introduce uh, Ms. Martina Perino, who is the program manager for the Great Lakes in Southern Africa at the International Republican Institute, originally from Mozambique and Italy. She has 10 years of, demo uh, of democracy and governance experience in Mozambique. 
DRC Congo, Zambia, and Kosovo. In Zambia, she was the, gov uh, she was the governance and social sectors program manager at the European Union delegation. There, Ms. Perino designed and managed the electoral support project and access to justice project and worked closely with local CSOs and other donors or human rights issues and local governance. In 2017, she joined USAID Kosovo as, uh, as the democracy and governance strategic planning specialist where among other tasks, she designed several projects including a local governance and conflict mitigation project, PVE project, media strengthening project, political party and legislative strengthening. Mrs. Perino has been an election observer in, in Mozambique, DRC, I mean, sorry, DR uh, Congo, Zambia, Kosovo, and Albania. Ms. Perino holds a degree in politics, philosophy, and economics, and a master's in international development. Welcome, Ms. Perino. Now I introduce uh, Dr. Gregory uh, Alonso Pirio. Uh, who possesses extensive experience in conducting research on political, social, and religious issues. He earned an MA in African Studies and a PhD in African History from the University of California, Los Angeles, and has published a number of academic articles dealing with Pan-Africanism and the Communist International. His dissertation focused on the political economy of Angola and Mozambique. So this is the topic to talk to you about. As a consultant to the Strategic Trade Advisory Corporation, Dr. Perio produced studies of the civil wars in West Africa and its uh, impact on the politics and economy of the region. He recently completed a major study of radical Isla Islamic groups in East Africa and the Horn of Afri Africa for the US uh, military and is held in high regard as a subject matter expert on African affairs. Dr. Perio has uh, occupied senior positions at the International Broadcasting Bureau, uh, Voice of America. He was chief of both the English to Africa and Portuguese to Africa uh, services for the VOA, with a special emphasis on Africa, the Middle East, and South, uh, South Central Asia, and has traveled extensively to cover events and plan uh, uh, programming priorities. This experience afforded him the opportunity to develop an in-depth knowledge of events in diverse geographic regions and enabled him to know personally many political actors, especially on the African continent. Dr. Perio has also spearheaded innovative media projects in diverse countries such as Afghanistan, Angola, Nigeria, Rwanda, and Zimbabwe. He is also the author of The African Jihad, Bin Laden's Quest for the Horn of Africa, Red Sea Press uh, 2008. Uh, Welcome, Dr. Perio. And with that, we will start uh, our event. And as Hannah has uh, introduced the topic, uh, our topic is Mozambique. And we have uh, our uh, Miss uh, Martina Perino, who is going to lead us, and she's a native of uh, Mozambique. So we couldn't have had uh, a better panelist to talk to us about uh, Mozambique. So, uh, Miss Perino, why don't you start and give, give the uh, the audience or the listener an overview of what uh, Mozambique is about and uh, so that we can start this discussion. Thank you. Great, thank you so much. I'm going to try to summarize approximately 50 years of history in a few minutes. So let's see how I do that. 
Um, so in, uh, in the 60s, Mozambique started its struggle for independence and as many other countries were going through similar um, movements uh, in the continent. And uh, independence was finally, was achieved in 1975. 1975 was in Portunia for Mozambique. Um, and it all seemed to be great, <laughs> except, um, except that uh, in 1977, the civil war broke out. Uh, Mozambique is known for the for its civil war, um, dominantly fought between um, Frelimo, which is the ruling party, that um, has been the ruling party since 1975, and Renamo, um, who was really created by uh, dissidents. Uh, some of the, the creators or founders were dissidents of the Frelimo movement and the struggle movement as well. Um, the civil war was long. Uh, the peace deal was only signed in 1992. Um, between that, approximately a million people died uh, from war-related, civilians uh, died from war-related um, causes, uh, and that's just the casualties that we're talking about, the social, the economic uh, impact, uh, it, it, was, uh, it was really significant and really devastated the country. So 1992, the peace deal was signed between the two um, parties. Um, and I think the most hopeful moment of Mozambique history was 1994 when uh, people went and voted for the first time. I, I myself remember that day. I did not vote. Uh, I will not reveal my age. I was a bit too young for that. <laughs> but my grandmother voted for the first time in her life. Uh, that was a very significant moment for me, even as a, as a, as a person. And uh, I got my first taste of democracy that day. Uh, and I loved it, <laughs> I have to say. It was, it was all about hope. It was all about what the future could bring. It was all about self-efficacy. It was all about the power of the, what people could choose. Um, and I'm sure everybody can relate to that, really. Uh, and things moved along. Things seemed to be going really well. Um, power sharing between the two parties was not um, was somehow working. In 1999, for instance, the, the parliament was... Uh, I wouldn't say 50-50, but really close between Frelimo and Renamo, uh, with Frelimo with, a, I think, 133 seats and uh, Renamo with 117 seats, if my math is correct. And uh, Frelimo winning, of course, the southern provinces, which are their stronghold, the three southern provinces, with Maputo being very south of it, the capital, and Cabo Delgado. So those were the four provinces that Frelimo actually won in 1999. Um, and with Renamo winning basically the center of the country and the other northern provinces as well. So, I mean, Mozambique made um, some progress in terms of social development, uh, the human development index that is run by UNDP shows a significant improvement over those years uh, while, starting from a, while also starting from a very low point. Um, I recognize that. Uh, and in 2009, rubies were discovered in Mozambique, in Cabo Delgado. That was, was an exciting day, uh, but it didn't really make much news internationally, I have to say. In 2011, Mozambique made the news again. Uh, I believe it was in October 2011. Uh, gas, the fifth largest gas deposit in the world, was discovered off the coast of Cabo Delgado. Um, and with that, a lot of hope, a lot of uh, excitement with uh, the potential uh, for economic growth that this could bring, and also social development that is really needed in Mozambique. Um, but 
unfortunately, hope was not a, was a bit short lived, I have to say, because there were significant challenges in the system. It really displayed um, the, the the power sharing conflict that that was never really resolved in uh, in Mozambique, and um, it really put this nascent democracy a bit to the test. With power slightly centralized in Maputo, or some would say, and uh, this kind of winner take all system that is still in place, and uh, in 2013, so less than two years later, a year and a half later, really, Renamo returned to its bases, or part of Renamo, I would say, returned to its bases in central Mozambique and um, re-engaged in a low-level uh, low or low-scale conflict. Um, this conflict is perhaps still ongoing, I would say, and uh, to certain degrees with flare-ups and ups and downs. Um, in that year, later that year, um, Renamo boycotted the municipal elections. Uh, that was a very important moment for politics and the, the importance of the democracy in Mozambique and it really put uh, Mozambique to the test. Well, but that was not all that was happening. There was um, um, a big scandal, a uh, corruption scandal, uh, uh, due to some loans that were contracted by the government where they were not um, approved by the, the parliament as they perhaps should have been. And those were $2 billion worth of loans. Uh, this really put the Mozambique in an economic crisis with uh, severe repercussions also from uh, donors really, um, really like a change in stance with dealing with Mozambique we saw. and. Uh, an economic crisis really has been there since with um, the local currency losing half its value and not, not having yet recovered. Uh, and that really dampened the mood in Mozambique because once we thought that everything was going well and gas was, was here and we were going to all be rich and we were all going to be great to have great roads and schools, uh, that was taken away a little bit. And... Uh, in 2019, however, another peace deal was signed between the two political parties who were still engaging in some kind of conflict uh, at a localized level, I would say. Um, and that was good. Uh, it was pretty historic, actually, uh, in the sense that uh, many scholars would say that it probably will last because uh, Mozambique actually approved uh, and the parliament passed legislation uh, for decentralization, which was one of the Renamo big um, asks uh, in these negotiations because power has been centralized really in Maputo and uh, not really being shared. So that's a good thing. <laughs> but uh, looking closely, perhaps those legislations will, might still cause some conflict or some uh, room for discussions and consensus, consensus building because um, there's still a lot of regulation that needs to um, be put in place. And the decentralization, it's a process. It's a, actually a long process sometimes. Um, when, and it still doesn't tackle, the current legislation does not tackle important issues like fiscal um, decentralization at the moment. Another but for this peace deal is that it was signed with a new uh, leader of Renamo, um, who had just taken a, the position eight months before signing the peace deal as the previous leader of Renamo passed away. So really soon after the peace deal was signed, it was immediately put to the test 
as uh, another Renamo leader, created a Junta Militar, which is like an organized militant group. And he's still engaging in this low level um, kind of conflict in the center of Mozambique. So will this peace deal last? It's really um, a bigger question. But why am I talking about uh, the, the rest of the country? It's because these issues are relevant for everybody in Mozambique. Um, and while we, uh, it's very important to recognize the conflict in uh, Cabo Delgado, and uh, Greg, Dr. Perio or Greg will be <laughs> doing that, um, I wanted to also focus on the rest because these issues are, are grievances that exist um, throughout the country. And right now we're seeing them flare up in two different parts of the country. Um, so, so where is Mozambique now? Well, now we have COVID. <laughs> so Mozambique right now is facing significant challenges as is the rest of the world, which really come on top of an economic crisis, two very large cyclones last year, I believe it was last year, <laughs> um, two conflicts in two different parts of the country and now COVID. Um, international flights have uh, currently being stopped. Um, there's 119 cases. They are spread throughout the countries. Um, the response from the government, uh, the government has put in place measures to try and uh, stop the spread. And it's gonna, it, it's really, we're gonna have to see how effective that will be. Thank you. Well, thank you so much, uh, Ms. Perino, for this uh, insights about Mozambique and the crisis. And of course, we delve uh, right into it, as you say correctly, Dr. Perio, uh, who is an expert, as uh, introduced, would uh, take us into uh, discussing the political development uh, beginning right after where uh, Ms. Perino left off, which is 2017 to current events, political uh, insurgency in uh, Cabo Delgado. And I believe Cabo Delgado geographically in the country is uh, uh, northeast of the country, correct? Yeah, so we'll be talking about that, but maybe we'll also touch on other related issues uh, such as the uh, counter, uh, counter uh, violence extremism. Also, uh, Dr. Perio would uh, address uh, how the uh, mineral resources that Ms. Perino has uh, uh, pointed out, uh, Rubio and gas, how that factors in, into the activities that we hear about and see in the news. Uh, so why didn't you take it from here, Mr. Uh, Perio? Okay, thank you. And thanks for the introduction uh, to Mozambique. Martina, that's great. Um, let me just start by saying Mozambique's a huge country. And for Americans in, in the audience here, um, the distance between Maputo, the capital in the south, and Pemba, the capital of the uh, Cabo Verde, uh, Cabo Verde, uh, Cabo Delgado province in the, um, in the north is pretty much the same between San Diego, California and Seattle, Washington. So from the Mexican border to virtually the Canadian border. And Mozambique is, has twice the area of California and half the population size. So just to keep this in, uh, it's important to keep that in mind because we're talking about you know, enormous distances here in a poor country. Um, I wanna talk about uh, this insurgency 
uh, what we call a violent extremist organization in, uh, in, in northern Mozambique, in Cabo Delgado province. Uh, from, the, from the bottom up, I want to talk about how it's rooted in local grievances and then to take it to the international arena. Uh, because, uh, and um, the group there, the, the local population calls it by different names. They call it Al-Shabaab, which in Arabic is the youth, or Mashababo in the uh, Kimwani language. Um, uh, it's also known as the Swahili Sunni, which is the Swahili path. Uh, so the, the, the local population uses different names for it. Um, uh, and I wanna divide um, looking at this group into what I think are three distinct phases of its development. First phase I'll call the Salafist social welfare phase when there was no violence. The second phase is the violent revenge phase. And the third one is the, <coughs> the current one, which I call the caliphate phase, where the group appears to be wanting to set up a caliphate uh, in Northern Mozambique, probably also in Tanzania. Uh, and it's uh, changed tactics to want to win the hearts and minds of the local population and create liberated zones. Um, <clears throat> The, the movement is rooted in a deep distrust of the Mozambican political elite and the lived experience of corruption at the local level in Cabo Delgado. Um, uh, and I, I described the distance between Cabo Delgado and Maputo. Um, in, in the local population, Cabo Delgado, they even have a term for people from the capital Maputo Maputecas, uh, uh, which is not, which is a pejorative term, and oftentimes that's just what they call people from there. They're, they're, and, and that I use that just to illustrate the distrust that that there that there is. Um, so, what what is going on at the political economy level here in Cabo Delgado that has given uh, rise to this distrust, this corruption? Um, uh, one, we have to recognize that there's an, a, a huge illicit economy operating in Cabo Delgado. Um, and it includes the uh, 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 commerce, transport of heroin from different routes, overland, by boat, et cetera, um, mainly from Pakistan and Afghanistan. Um, there's a, a illicit economy in rubies and other precious gems in gold in timber wildlife and um uh often what happens is the police in the province and other state actors um participate in this in one way or other get paid off to let it happen and to, to go forth so there is this experience of people seeing this huge illicit uh economy taking place there, uh, they're not benefiting from it, and people associated with government uh, who do benefit from it quite a bit. Um, so, and these figures are political figures, government officials, police, and other security forces. Um, and also at the, at the local level, we've seen a lot of complaints by 
local shopkeepers and that about having to make payments to the police and that. So there's this this corrupt uh, corruption at the local level that uh, has created tremendous distrust of of the state and those working for the state. Um, also, the population reside in an area of great natural wealth, and they see very little benefit coming to them. Um, they, uh, uh, Martina was mentioning the natural gas, uh, some of the world's largest uh, reserves of natural gas are offshore. Um, there's the world's largest ruby mine there. And fairly recently, last year, in fact, uh, it was announced that there were huge uh, um, gold deposits there. Uh, in the region, and um, so to to take advantage of these natural resources, um, the government has given land to uh, international firms concessions. So in the very north of the province, on the uh, Fuji Peninsula, the American firm Anadarko got a huge concession, um, in which they were. They were building the world's one of the world's largest liquefied natural gas facilities for the offshore natural gas. Uh, people were resettled from that, uh, despite the the good intentions of Anadarko. That didn't go very well. Um, uh, eventually, Occidental bought bought the, the 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 bought out Anadarko and the African assets that Occidental bought went to Total, the French company. So Total is now uh, in um, control of what was the Anadarko uh, uh, construction site. Um, in addition, ExxonMobil um, was planning to invest $50 billion, that's with a B, in the offshore exploration natural gas and in a, in a, in a uh, liquefied natural gas facility um, next to the one that Total uh, 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 is constructing. That, that's all been put on hold in part because of the crisis uh, in the petroleum industry and the cash flow problems of ExxonMobil and also because of the concerns about this insurgency that's taking place. So what had happened was um, you got a lot of, of these local farmers and fishermen were displaced and resettled. And um, there's been a lot of investigation into their condition. That didn't go very well at all. Um, the locals claimed that they didn't get the money that they were supposed to get. It went to uh, non-governmental organizations, uh, that's their allegation at any rate. I don't have a proof of that. Based in Maputo rather than going to them. Um, and then we'll, we'll, we'll see that I've talked to people in that area and they tell me that a lot of, uh, a number of the local youths who were resettled as part of this joined this Al-Shabaab group. Uh, so it's important to bear in mind. So the, the people said, we basically, uh, lost a lot. We haven't gained from this, and um, uh, international organizations and people in Maputo are the ones who are getting rich off of our suffering. 
So that's the narrative that they have there. Um, uh, and I just wanted to add that uh, myself and two of my co-authors, Yusuf Adam, who is Mozambican and uh, is a professor emeritus at um, uh, University of Eduardo Milan in Maputo, and then Robert Patali, who used to be with uh, U.S. military intelligence, we've 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 actually produced uh, recommendations for international corporations investing there on how they can do a better job to avoid this sort of thing. And I think uh, that publication has been spread out on an, on an email. Um, so so anyway, so that's you know this is the context. Oh, and also the um, the there is a company, Gemsfield, which is a British company. They own 75% of a company and 25% is Mozambican owned that has a concession in, in the middle of uh, Cabo Delgado province, exploring, exploiting the world's largest um, uh, uh, ruby mines. And there uh, have been all kinds of allegations of human rights abuses, of torture, killing, by security forces, uh, both of the company and of the uh, the Mozambican government in putting down the artisanal miners. Um, and Gemsfield reached a settlement out of court in the UK. They were brought to court on this in the UK for almost eight, over $7 million. Um, and we'll, we'll get back to that and how that seems to have played into uh, this movement becoming violent. In Cabo Delgado, so so that's background. So uh, um, uh, in Cabo Delgado, there's a large uh, Muslim population of all kinds of Muslims <laughs> of, of different traditions, and there's also Christian populations um, there too. Um, but uh, uh, we see the emergence in over the last couple of decades in particular of what might call Salafist mosque in the region. Um, and this fits into a pa larger pattern along the East African coast. Um, one is sources on the ground in Cabo Delgado tell us that some young men had gone to Afghanistan as Mujahideen to fight the Soviets, um, uh, ostensibly recruited by the CIA. Um, although I don't have firm data, uh, firm document documentation, but that is what we're hearing from people on the ground. Now th they returned, and in a pattern that we saw in Somalia and in Tanzania, they began to radicalize mosques. So some of that was going on. In addition, young men uh, were given uh, receiving scholarships to travel and study in Saudi Arabia. Now, the reports that I'm getting to are, these are both Muslim and Christian young men, and they, they come back and they have um, this Salafist view of Islam as a political tool. Uh, and they're involved in setting up mosques and uh, doing social welfare work in the community, uh, helping out with food distribution, uh, uh, setting up schools, uh, that sort of thing. Um, I even have reports of one of the 
the leaders two years ago of the group there who had a scholarship to go to Somalia to study um, scholarship. Like this. Um, uh, so, so we had uh, the development of a number of mosques in the province that were different than the traditional Islamic mosques, which are um, more Sufi uh, mosque uh, and much more um, that whose tradition goes back in the region hundreds of years, just uh, hundreds of years. Um, now, one of the things is that the 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 I, who we've been able to identify as some of the leaders have were active in these mosques. There was these two brothers, they're the Mabondo brothers. Uh, interestingly enough, they were uh, active in these mosques. They were also doing pretty well as uh, merchants selling cloth and things like that. And then in a recent occupation of Mosimbo de Playa, a major town in the region, uh, the leaders of that town, the leaders who had, um, they occupied it for just 17 hours. The, the locals uh, recognized the, the, uh, some of the leaders and they have been local, local people. Again, some of them had been traders. So you kind of get the sense of, of the, the leadership as being a kind of entrepreneurial group. Um, one guy was a hairstylist, but, but the other ones, and they were active, active in the mosque. And one was a fairly famous uh, soccer player. Uh, uh, in the region. So, um, so anyway, so we, we have this phase. Now, in October 2017, it went violent. Now, what happened? Why did it go violent? Um, talking to one, e or he listening to one imam speak about this um, uh, in Cabo Delgado, he said that the first recruits came from Montepues district. And that's where you have the ruby mining going on. And when I heard that, it clicked in my mind that um, so many of the uh, jihadist violent extremist groups I've studied in Africa, whether it be in Somalia, Tanzania, Uganda, uh, Boko Haram in Nigeria, they become violent when they adopt a narrative of revenge. That that's how they they justify their violence is we've been humiliated, we've been damaged, etc. Um, so so um, it is interesting to hear that and and then um, somebody from the British Corporation Gensfield contacted me, and he wanted to say, well, you know, uh, we don't think so. We don't think that's what happened. And so when I said, when I explained to him, well, I heard, we've heard this from an Imam who was claiming, he said, well, maybe they were Tanzanians uh, who were artisanal miners in the area. So it's, uh, it's not completely sure, but, um, but given this whole pattern, we, 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 we then emerge into this violent extremist phase. And um, the vengeance can be seen in this phase, the attacks that take place will obviously on they were doing on police stations in their first attack and on gov government um, offices mm -hmm. in particular. And then after that, there's a lot of instances of violence against different communities and members of communities and beheadings and, and this sort of thing. And um, uh, so 
again, it, it has in my back of my mind, I'm asking, okay, these seems like revenge killings that are taking place at the local level. Um, now, recently, that has died down. What we're seeing is um, the emergence and articulation of wanting to establish a caliphate. We're seeing an operational strategy across broad distances and simultaneous attacks on um, for, for, uh, um, or occupations of towns. The, the jihadists, when they recently went into Mosimra de Praia, they robbed stores and banks and that, and they gave it the food to the people and the money to the people. It's sort of like a Robin Hood approach. So we're seeing this shift and then they, but they don't occupy any of the towns. They go back into the bush and they have their own camps and, and this sort of thing. So it reminds me of almost a kind of Maoist approach, guerrilla type of Maoist approach, where you occupy the countryside and surround the cities. And you can see also now the cutting off of roads and bridges and all of that seem to be devised to uh, 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 create zones where they can operate and where the local population is dependent upon them and where they're doing good deeds for the local population. So you have the shift. At the same time that this is going on, we've seen an increase in ISIS um, on ISIS websites of videos of the group that they're taking. And it's really interesting to, to, to see some of these videos um, and hear what they're, they're saying in Portuguese and that. Um, uh, but so, and then ISIS claiming them as part of their uh, Central African um, province. Uh, so there's a shift that has taken place. Now, how much of, of this change in strategy reflects local initiative? How much of it reflects being trained and informed uh, by outsiders or for people who have traveled to Somalia and other places and are learning techniques? I can't say. Um, uh, I've only seen one, in, uh, one report of an IED, uh, improvised explosive device that was in March of last year, which indicates some kind of training to, to come up with that kind of bomb making technique. Um, their arms uh, seem, people have done analysis of the pictures of them with their arms, their weapons, is uh, they pretty much seem to be what they've, they've taken from government uh, facilities and forces of that. So, uh, but given the uh, illicit arm trafficking in East Africa, it would not be surprising that they could get arms out from that network too. Um, so, so those are those are I think where we are right now. Uh, so let me just talk about what the government response to has been. Um, the, there are two two sides to this. One is the government's own forces are um, have been engaged. The local population, when there have been meetings of some of their leaders in the capital of Cabo Delgado province, Pemba and that, they said, we can't tell the difference whether it's violence from the government or violence from the Al-Shabaab. We're, we're, we're suffering from both of it. 
our young men are taken away. Um, uh, so, so they're, 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 and there, and there's a, there's a lot of, of testimony to, to, to this. So, um, the human rights records of the government forces isn't very good. Um, and then, um, the government has, um, uh, hired outside security forces. Eric Prince of Blackwater for the last, the last couple of years been trying to get a contract with the Mozambican government. Um, he wanted, it, it's complicated. I won't go into all the details of it now. Um, he, at one point he actually put helicopters into Cabo Delgado, but they weren't there very long and he withdrew them. So then the Mozambican government contracted with the Wagner Group, which is a Russian security firm that operates in, the Central African Republic, I think uh, Libya, um, Sudan, um, and some other places in Africa. Um, and they were in there and they had helicopters, uh, but the Al-Shabaab forces killed uh, about a dozen of them and they withdrew. And um, more recently, um, and, and, and let me just add is, it's interesting because the Wagner group is often associated with the exploration of gems and gold and things like that on the side. So there, there has been some reports of Russian firms getting concessions for these substantial gold deposits in Montepoise district. Uh, so bear in mind that there may be a relationship between the Russians on the ground and uh, these uh, business interests of, of oligarchs. And the Wagner Group is, um, the guy who runs it is a close ally of Vladimir Putin. Um, so they withdrew. Then the uh, group based in Zimbabwe, the Dick Advisory Group that had been as a, a record of demining and um, trying to police uh, poachers and wildlife and all this. And the guy, Lionel Dick, who is close to the Zimbabwean president, he got a contract. He brought in helicopters. Uh, reports are that there are zone, drones being operated there. Um, and so they're on the ground right now and the uh, with the Mo Mozambican forces. The, at a regional level, and it's, I mentioned Lionel Dick, and he, he apparently has a close has had a close business relationship with the president of Zimbabwe, because now the president of Zimbabwe has had discussions with the Mozambican president about the security situation, and the report is is that Zimbabwean troops have come to the border with Mozambique. They've they've massed there, um, so that's to watch. And in, in Tanzania. Uh, which Cabo Delgado boards Tanzania. The Tanzanians have have sent troops to the border with Mozambique too. So we have in in the central part of Mozambique where the Zimbabwean troops are is where this Renamo faction has been engaged in off and on attacks, um, and that's there. But for Mozambique, that's that's a for Zimbabwe uh, linkage to the sea through that region is really important. And in fact, during the Mozambican Civil War, Zimbabwean troops guarded that whole corridor, which consists of a railroad, um, 
a road and a pipeline. Um, and so you kind of think, is this gonna be happening again? But it's good to know a little bit of the history. And then the Tanzanians um, last year, they drove a lot of the uh, jihadists who had gone into Tanzania back into Mozambique. Um, and it's hard to tell who's Tanzanian, who's Mozambican, the people, they speak the same language and, um, and, and they're related. Um, but the Tanzanians are there. So we have this regionalization going on. Um, now, one of the, my concerns is that um, this, group in Cabo de Gallo could spread. I have reports that I haven't confirmed that there are six di districts now in the Asa province that have um, some cells of the group. Um, and there, there have been over the last couple of years, uh, people from young men from Nampula province who have gone up to join the recruit groups. They've been loved. Some of them been arrested in that by the, the Mozambican authorities. So we have that um, uh, possibility that this could spread, could, could infect more Southern Tanzania, even Malawi. So we, I think we, there's this regionalization, the possibility of the conflict, and um, there needs to be some sort of long-term solution to it. The Mozambican government first call, called them uh, criminal elements, um, reminded me that during the Civil War, they used to call uh, Renamo the armed bandits, Bandido Amado. So it's kind of a similar narrative. In just the last couple of days, I've seen now Mozambican officials calling them terrorists and linkages being made now to uh, wider um, uh, uh, violent extremist organization like ISIS. Uh, so there seems to be an evolution of their narrative about what's going on. Um, Hashim, do you want me to stop? And I don't know where time-wise, or I could. Uh, uh, if you can um, highlight the media wall in, from your perspective. So uh, the, the media. Go ahead. Media responses. Or uh, the, media's reporting on this. So perhaps I can start with the local media and the Mozambican media. They've really been trying to uh, sh show and. Uh, as much as they can, the situation on the ground, and uh, um, found also resistance. A uh, few journalists have been arrested and detained for several months without trial, therefore with limited due process, and then released on bail. Uh, and more recently, another journalist has disappeared, uh, or has been disappeared, uh, <laughs> with um, his last messages implying that there may have been some government forces actually um, surrounding his house. Now, of course, I, I have not verified that myself, but uh, the, the media is, is really an important part of the solution. Uh, without media, we don't know what the extent of the problem. Without the media's work, we don't know, we cannot think of the right solutions for the country. Um, and I would encourage everybody for more transparency, really, because that's the, it's one of the key elements of a democracy, and that's what really helps a democracy in challenging times. Um, and then the media internationally has picked up these stories. I have to say that other organizations as well, like Human Rights Watch, have really um, advocated in, uh, for these journalists that have been um, 
face with such challenges. Very good. Dr. Perio, uh, can you also address if the military, as far as the response of the government, uh, in the report it seems, in the media seems, seems to, like you uh, outlined that the media, uh, the government response, sorry, it's heavy on the on this group. So do you foresee any way for reforming the military? That's a great question. And um, I think there are a couple things to, we have to look at, you know, I'm not a military expert, let me just say that. But the history of the Mozambican military during the Cold War and uh, is liberation, uh, the, the liberation struggle for independence. And then during the Civil War, they had training from the Eastern Bloc, um, from Communist China, from North Korea, from the Soviets. Um, and so there is a, a tradition that they come out of. And I think it would behoove them, and I know that there's some interest within the Mozambican military to learn from democratic countries how the military functions in that. So I think there would even be a role for the, the US military in training and that sort of thing. I also think because of the regionalization, the potential regionalization of this and the threat of establishing a caliphate in Northern Mozambique, that the Africa Union has to get involved. We know what the role they played in Somalia, what they're doing in the Sahel region and all of that. There needs to be a, a role that, that, um, for that. So um, I don't want to label people good guys or bad guys here. I want to get, my idea is work with people to get them out of places that aren't productive and aren't constructive and move towards other things. And in that sense, I think that um, uh, training by the US military and human rights and, um, and making available the coming to this country for training and that would be good. Now, I don't know all the laws about military that are human rights, but I, that would be really important to do, I think. And I think it would be welcome. Very good. Uh, thank you. Thank you for that uh, analysis. Uh, we have a question from our uh, audience, and this question is directed to both you and Martina, and it's from Christian uh, uh, DR, and he's from the Pentagon via Riston, and um, he's a former uh, Air Force officer, and he's quite, and also he's a contractor and current IWP uh, donor. His question is, uh, is there any evidence of ties between Mozambique's Islamic militants and either Al-Qaeda or ISIS or Hezbollah? Thank you very much. Greg? Okay. Um, You've implied okay. the answer, I think, before. Yeah, yeah. I think I, I uh, was talking about uh, these linkages with, with ISIS. Um, the the people who have been captured who have come from other countries, there have been Ugandans. I remember these Ugandans were interviewed, these two young guys that had come down from Kampala and they were being interviewed by the media and the police had made them um, available for interview. And they said, well, um, are you with the Allied Democratic Front, which is a Ugandan group based in the Congo? 
and uh, which is now ostensibly an ISIS uh, province, this group. And um, they said, oh, no, no, we're not. We're not with ISIS. We're with Al-Shabaab, <laughs> meaning the one in Somalia. And, uh, the naivete of the guys what got me. They're early on, a couple of years ago, uh, one of the leaders was uh, identified as uh, someone from Guinea in West Africa. So um, they were Tanzanians. Um, uh, but I haven't seen anybody from the Middle East or uh, actually, or, or, or seen references or even of Somalis. Although you know it's a it's been traditionally a corridor for Somali refugees to go to South Africa coming down through here and that, but I haven't I can't recall seeing anything in in the last couple of years about that. So, what is the nature of that relationship? I think we still have a question mark, uh, but that uh, there are connections that they're sending them videos to be posted on their website. The ISIS website that's going on. Um, uh, do they receive any money? I don't know. Uh, to add to that, I would say what came first as well. Uh, was there already some conflict, and then if if there are these linkages with ISIS, did ISIS then approach them and uh, to some extent support the cause, or 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 how did it start? And I think that's really the if we know the root cause, then we can actually find the solutions. Yeah, and if I can add to that, that's why I wanted to look from the ground up because the solutions, uh, these international linkages, but the people in the province have to feel like their government's working for them. And, and that the investment that's taking place there is gonna be a benefit for them. And, uh, but now that the conflict has grown, there needs to be, two years ago, that would have been much easier to have done. And there are methodologies that can be done to, to accomplish that. Now there needs to be a military strategy to protect the population and free them from the control of the group and engage the population through participatory means, what they need, uh, from that. And then there needs to be a commitment at the national government level that money that comes in from this international investment, a lot of it gets plowed back into local communities. And, that, and that's not happening. And um, uh, uh, so that's an important shift that needs to be taken. People perceive, in fact, there was oh, about a year and a half ago a protest in Palma near where the resettlement took place because of the investment by the international petroleum companies that they thought that this group Al-Shabaab, Mozambican Al-Shabaab was being financed by political elites in Maputo to chase them off their land so that they could have rights to their land. And we could go into the whole issue of land tenure in Mozambique, it's far from ideal, but uh, the, the 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 local people need to feel they're being they're benefiting from all this, and the Catholic Bishop of Pemba, um, which is the capital of Cabo Delgado Province, has been a very articulate and passionate uh, spokesman about social justice, and he's he's right on target about what needs to be done. 
and he should be listened to. Thank you. Very good. Very good. Very good. So our next question is um, from Facebook, and I think it's you've partly answered. So uh, the question is, uh, uh, what's the U.S. government in Cabo Delgado response is and strategy plan and the focus of collaboration with other donors? Um, I can start, Greg, you can uh, fill it in. Um, I mean, I, I, I hate to put the responsibility on the U.S. government, uh, I'll be honest, <laughs> but I will try to answer the question because uh, honestly, it's uh, the Mozambicans <laughs> and that goes from uh, the government to all the way down to me <laughs> um, that should be finding these solutions. I have to say that the U.S. government has tried to uh, promote this kind of um, local solutions and, uh, and uh, participatory processes. But they cannot do it alone. They, they need uh, strong local partners uh, to do that and to be effective as well. And uh, these local organizations, the, the local media, they, I mean, these are small organizations with lots of challenges and uh, that they really need to be built from the bottom up. Uh, you cannot just expect them to solve uh, the issue of disenfranchisement within six months in Cabo Delgado. Uh, it's an issue that goes back uh, from colonial times, so it's also not fair for the local, these local organizations to be responsible for that. Um, donors have tried. Donors, um, donors are putting a lot of money into Cabo Delgado. Uh, on, a, on a monthly basis, I see new awards or new contracts for... Um, for, for such work. However, I would, I would love to have an opportunity to discuss, are we doing the right thing by focusing it really in a few regions and really create, sometimes creating a bit more of that South-North divide that uh, has played into the rhetoric that Cabo Delgado is forgotten, everything goes to the South of Mozambique, so now everything will go to Cabo Delgado and um, um, the South, still leaving a chunk of the country, like the middle of the country, uh, with that also has conflict, by the way, um, kind of open. But it is important. Uh, I, I am not uh, denying that because as um, Greg also mentioned, other provinces are starting to feel the, the impact and the effect of such, uh, of what's happening in Cabo Delgado. Right now, yes, in Nampula, a few people went from Nampula, which is also in northern Mozambique, to Cabo Delgado. Now there's refugee, well, I inter internally displaced people going from Cabo Delgado to uh, Nampula. So this is, the impact of this is obviously spreading. So the solutions need to be, yes, at the local level, because local people need to feel that at the local level, they have a chance and they have a voice and that their government is actually working for them. I was looking at some statistics recently and uh, in a recent poll, 48% of people admitted on this poll that they had bribed a government official to obtain a government document. Um, that's, those are the people that admitted it. <laughs> I don't know if I... Uh, so perhaps the number is higher. 63% said that um, if a richer person um, had the opportunity, they, they would be able to bribe and take their land away. That is very important. Land is a... <laughs> Land in Mozambique, lots of natural resources, but land is important for every human. 70% um, of Mozambicans are in agriculture. Uh, if you take their land away, what are they left with? And uh, so if a richer person 
can do that, where do they stand? And is that the country that they want? So the, the solutions need to be at the local level, but, the, but they also need to be at a systematic level of governance that needs reform. So it's, um, and there's different types of conflicts in the country. So not everything will be resolved with technical inputs of if I train you on how to do a budget, the people in your in capital Gado will be happy, but it's this power being shared. Uh, and by shared, I don't mean just between political parties, which is also extremely important, but also shared between uh, those who govern us, uh, govern us and the citizens. Uh, and the media, do they have the access to information that they need? Do the civil societies get to hold the government officials accountable? Are the provincial assemblies doing their job? Uh, in, in the recent polls, people couldn't even tell you if the, what the job of the provincial assembly was. So they cannot be happy. If there is no um, citizen awareness of where the solutions also can be found, um, it's, um, we are missing a bit of opportunity now, I think. So. Thank you so much. Yeah, can, can I, I on, uh, yeah, on the issue of, of uh, donor assistance in that, um, let me say, I've done a number of assessments of USA projects in Mozambique over the years. And I'm really impressed by the methodologies that uh, USAID has applied. And I've seen such incredible outcomes uh, 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 as a result of it. And I've heard this from people at the local level, talking to mothers under, under trees and about how their kids can walk now at, at, at nine months where they used to walk at two years and things like that. It, um, so I'm a big fan of what uh, has been done. Um, and from what I've seen for Cabo Delgado is the uh, request for proposals that have come out of Office of Transition Initiatives and all of that, they seem well conceived. I, with COVID-19 and with the violence there, I don't know what the status of them is. I imagine they're pretty much on hold. Um, uh, but yeah, the donors have to get together and have a plan. And, um, and, and the government has to play a leadership role in that too. But, but, and, and if I could also add, I think that the business, the international business community can learn a lot from USAID on how to invest in the country and how to um, uh, 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 work with the local communities to make them more prosperous. And um, because I've talked to Anadarko officials, I've talked to Gemfield officials and all of that. They don't have a good sense of how to go about that, and they're and for so, corporate social responsibility to be effective, they need to be talking with the people who know how to do it. And USAID is one of them, but I mean, but there may be other NGOs in that. The other thing is, I would say to the international donors, be careful about hiring NGOs based only in Maputo to do work in the the north. Um, I, I, I'm hearing criticism about um, Islamic groups in Maputo who are receiving money and who don't relate with the uh, Islamic leaders at, at the local level and that sort of thing. So it's a complicated thing, but be, 
you know, engaging the people at the local level, that's, that's their solution. Yeah, I mean, I completely agree, Greg. I mean, IRI, uh, the International Republican Institute, has been doing this in Tanzania, in the Sahel, um, in Kosovo, or like the Balkans, I should say, and also in Asia. It's, it's really important to get the right partners and to be credible. Uh, if without that, I mean, this is all a point of credibility and trust. Um, and when people lose trust in the system, that's when these things can happen. So you need to find stakeholders and partners that are credible. Um, and there are lots and lots of people yeah, that absolutely. want a solution, and those are everywhere in Mozambique. So I really believe the solution is feasible. This this can be solved to a certain extent. Very good. So this this leads us to our next question, Ms. Perino. This is from Sebastian Snerino, uh, and he's saying, what characteristics unique to Mozambique and its people would you say could allow the country to develop into a strong positive influence for the entire area? That's a very good question. Um, I'm buying time to think of the right answer. Perhaps it's, if I had to pick a few, it would be religious tolerance. But Mozambique is a, is a country that, I mean, uh, this, this is not, I don't know if it's, this is really so clear cut a religious issue. It's more of a governance and opportunity issue, uh, I, would, I would really stress that. Um, lots of families in Mozambique are intermarried. Uh, Islam has been in Mozambique before the Portuguese arrived. Uh, it's not an Islamic problem as much as a, an opportunity problem, a hope um, problem that can be solved, by the way. Um, I think what makes uh, Mozambique unique is that we value the, the value of peace because people have gone through a war and they they know the, the cost of it. So. Um, and what makes Mozambique unique is that there are a lot of people from the government to different political parties, to the media, the civil society organizations, definitely the donors um, that want a positive outcome and uh, that are willing to fight for it and work for it. So it's, it's really good. And I can also add to that since I've been there uh, in 2009, uh, the Indian Ocean is one of the clearest, clearest water, the fruits and the vegetables and the fish right fresh from the ocean. So that's my take. Okay, he also has a second question to Dr. Perio. What are the two or three chains that must happen to, to compete successfully against uh, radicalization efforts and do they need to happen in a specific order? Wow, that's a great question. But you take that question, Dr. Peter. Yeah, it just I just want to add, say I completely agree with Martina. Mm -hmm. I I did an, an assessment of the interfaith interreligious program to fight malaria in Mozambique, and I traveled all over the country and I met with Christian and Muslim leaders, and I remember being in, in the Islamic Center in Beira, and we we're at a table and there were Catholics and all kinds of Christian groups and Muslim of different traditions and there were Baha'is there and Hindus. And I said, why is it that you guys get all along, get along so well here and in other countries that people don't? And they started to tear up. And they said to me, it's because our government has never divided us on the basis of religion. And they were all in agreement. So it, that's one of the strong points of Mozambique, I, I believe. So, but now the question was um, the steps. I think I was trying, I had 
uh, was already mapping uh, an outline. Um, it's all about community engagement, 100%. And uh, how having the methodology, you go in, you meet with the leaders of communities, you hear what they want, you um, uh, work with them to get the resources that they need for the projects that are important to them. Um, then there's the, the military side. Obviously, they have to live in security now. That's one I'm I can speak less to because I'm not a military man. But uh, but but there it, it's I've seen I've seen this work in Mozambique. I've just seen uh, people when they have a voice, when they're being respected, when uh, they can have oversight over their schools and clinics, and that the outcomes are really good. And and um, and again, USAID has supported in the past um, the development of local community leadership councils in that, at the request of the Mozambican government, and th those things have to be done. And but but the other side is that is this whole resettlement project, the investments and all that. That's a problem throughout the country, and that has to be solved in a way of, that's of justice for. The local communities and the Catholic Church has had some meetings in Maputo from groups who have been resettled in all different provinces and they all have the same complaints the same concerns and all of that so you know that the government has to to work on that side of it I, I would agree I mean um, as, as I arrived we really have invested heavily in different countries from um, Libya or Jordan or Tunisia on working with the local, cultivating local leadership, uh, but ensuring community um, participatory approaches, uh, community-based media as part of the solution, um, community monitoring um, public service provision, uh, increasing the level of transparency that people feel. But, but again, this is, this is really at the local level. And then there's still the structural problems of corruption where Mozambique still scores extremely low. There's still uh, the problems of grant corruption um, that are costing uh, Mozambique's future really because uh, if you think uh, $2 billion that could have been invested in schools uh, where right now there's 50 kids in a, in a primary school class, um, then you realize the cost of it, the cost of corruption. And uh, so those are things that if the Mozambican system, so it's not just the government, it's the whole system and reform, um, there will be better results because then it wouldn't be dependent on USAID. We would have our internal resources to invest in these things. But until then, there needs, there, it really pays off to invest in these approaches. Okay, right. Um, very great insights. Uh, the next question, I think Dr. Piri have already answered. It has to do with uh, communication ties to ISIS. What does, the, what does that mean in Cabo Delgado context and so on? I believe you've answered. Any addition there? Yeah. Okay. I think it's about as much as I can say right now. Very good. And then, <laughs> yeah, the next question is from Sarah Van Horn. And she's uh, saying, we've heard a lot about the military response that the government has tried in Northern Mozambique. Have you seen any progress or interest of the Mozambican government to address some of the drivers of terrorism, socioeconomic inequality, lack of governance, 
in a meaningful way or is the government likely to only focus on military solutions for the foreseeable future? And I think uh, Mrs. Perino just addressed some of it and you've addressed it too, but do you want to take another? Um, I, I, I'm going to give some statistics and maybe not respond to that question directly, uh, but Mozambique has made some progress in terms of human development index, which measures lots of um, indicators uh, for social development. But right now, it Mozambique uh, ranks 180th in the world. Um, just to give you some perspective, DRC Congo is 179. Afghanistan is 170. Uh, <laughs> Nigeria, with many people try to compare Mozambique to because of this, this issue now, scores 158. So uh, there's a lot of work to be done. There's a, a, a lot of work to be done. Um, from the health sector to the education sector and people's livelihood, malnutrition. Um, I, I have traveled to um, Cabo Delgado several times. And I, I have to say that the situation is dire. It's um, it, electrification, 5% of the rural areas will have it more or less. It's, it just makes you wonder, um, have we come far enough uh, since independence or since uh, 1992? And I think some people feel like they need, they want more, they want more development. Um, and um, there's more work to be done. Okay, the follow-up question is also, what role has the AU and SADC played in the, uh, in the conflict? I think partially have been uh, answered, but SADC role, I think SADC is the uh, Southern uh, Economic uh, Community, right? Uh, Martina, yeah. Um, I would say that uh, the role they've played is really uh, has not been very visible uh, as of now, and I do not know of uh, what is happening behind closed doors. Uh, but I would welcome more solutions from the African Union and perhaps even SADC. What I can say is that um, they're not uh, these are not institutions that are well known by the average person in Mozambique uh, in the middle of Cabo Delgado, so. Their engagement, with their engagement, I would like to see also the benefit of this because um, they have been criticized in, uh, in the past for their election observation methodology and how they're not consistent. And so for me, it's really about finding uh, credible partners. And if they're going to be bringing solutions, please come. <laughs> great, great. Um, the, also, uh, this question is directed to Dr. Pirio from uh, Ricardo. Uh, uh, and he asked that um, his question is that whether uh, the media strategy of Cabo Delgado's militias are more invisible comparison with ISIS or back, uh, Boko Haram or even Al Shabaab. What do you think about their similarities and different strategies? Well, that's a really a good question. Um, I'm not sure I have a good answer for that. Uh, what surprises me now, and it's only a, in recent couple of months that we seem to shift to what I call the caliphate, you know, a hearts and minds approach. Um, uh, and I'm trying to think of the Boko Haram. Um, you know, 
I'll, I'll say this in Bornu province, the, in Nigeria for Boko Haram, the, what I'm always, I'm surprised about is some of the research I've seen from projects that have been done there with the local population, how much the local population has maintained a high opinion of Boko Haram, maybe outside the capital city of Borno, but in the countryside in that, uh, because they're anti-government. And, you know, there's, um, yeah, it's a good question. I'm not sure I have a good a answer. Um, very good. Very good. Yeah. The question is, uh, this is also from Facebook, and uh, the, uh, the questioner is saying, I believe you mentioned that there may be a direct link to human rights violations by the company uh, Gimsfield and the subsequent 7.6 million legal payout. Can you elaborate on that? Are you saying the alleged abuses led to a violent uprising or the legal payout may motivate the insurgents to instigate human rights abuses to seek further legal payouts? I think the question is directed to Dr. Perio. Um, no, what, what I'm looking at is how did, how did the group become violent and uh, it be, you know, in this recruitment occurred in this, the area where there were these abuses. This was before the uh, payout that occurred. Now, there's been an amazing study done by a Mozambican group on that payout and all the problems the payout caused in the community. Um, uh, and again, I think this is a case where the corporation had good intentions, but not understanding the local uh, communities, the context, uh, uh, going by kind of British legal uh, solutions. Um, the people who were receiving the money were often being uh, alienated by their communities because um, they had, well, everybody here was affected by this. Why are you getting the money? And, and so um, it didn't work well. Um, uh, but no, I don't see the payout having anything to do with the rise of violence. But let me say something that to underscore that I think it was in March that, you know, there, there are um, all these artisanal miners and somebody lets them on to the company's grounds to go into the mines that have been abandoned or aren't being used and that there was a cave-in that killed dozens of people. Um, I've seen one figure over 50. Um, uh, and some of, and I saw an interview with one local leader describing the number of men, women and children in their community who had lost their lives. But then there are a lot of other artisanal miners that come from Tanzania, other countries, other parts of Mozambique who lost their lives too. And um, so it's, it's a terrible situation. And after that event happened, then there were attacks on the security forces of, of, of the mines uh, by, by whomever, but there were, there, so that happened. So they need to get control of their situation there. Um, my, Jamfield says that there are criminal syndicates at work there that are facilitating these miners and buying their gems and then paying them 
little money for for them to the miners and that sort of thing. Uh, but it also seemed like some of the security forces were maybe working with the criminal syndicates. And but can you imagine, you know, over 50 people killed and we don't hear about it? I mean, it's just it's an it's an unbelievable situation. And, and they, 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 they can do better. I mean, at, at IRI, we work with on our resource management and uh, making sure that um, the local communities can also benefit from le um, natural resources. Uh, we do this in the Gambia, in South Africa, in Colombia. It's very important to have a, a proper plan in place. Uh, it cannot just be ad hoc and at the willingness uh, or at the level of knowledge of every company because that level of knowledge might be different. Um, and the situation is different in every case. So it's really about, again, it goes back to one, real partnerships, um, two, somebody to over, oversee these things, uh, somebody legitimate to oversee any processes that are going on between the local community, whether it's some resettlement or something like that. And, and also um, having the media in case something, something tragic like that happening, it doesn't really make the debate stage in, in Mozambique. And then that is a problem for me because um, if we do not discuss it, we cannot find the solutions. Okay, great point. Uh, talking about the media, I think I agree the media need to do better and more perhaps. Um, the next question is from uh, Facebook from Faisal Wajakon. And it states that uh, the question is, it has become more clear that Islamic militants use Islam as a camouflage for gaining political and economic power and interests. If the Mozambican government tries and reconciles group interests with collective action in providing public goods, will end the political crisis? Will that end the political crisis in the country? From my point of view, yeah, that's that that's part of it. The the it's in the details that, <laughs> that uh, you know. Uh, the secrets in the details and in having genuine, um, I mean, to have to rebuild trust. Um, let, let, me, let me tell you an example. You know, we're, you know, I've worked in Mozambique a lot. I've come across so many amazingly dedicated people there. And I remember a governor in Nampula, there's a neighboring province I met with, and there had been a violent reaction to cholera. Um, uh, during a cholera outbreak. And um, the youth in the community were attacking workers and uh, health workers who came in and all, and, and all sorts of things. The governor learned from that. And so working on issues of malaria, he said, all right, what we have to do, and he ordered this, that his district administrators, they had, he said, I want you to bring everybody, people from all political parties into our meetings so we can come about and come up with solutions. And so there is, you know, there are people who have tried to do this and they do do this. Um, it just, uh, this needs to be done in Cabo Delgado more. And um, we've been in conversation, this was a, like a year and a half ago with a, a district administrator in Cabo Delgado and he welcomed this. He said, yeah, this is what we need, you know? Um, of course, we didn't have the resources to do it, but he said, yeah, we need to hear from the communities. We need to know what they want and how, 
and then then so we can respond to them and, and all that. But uh, that's the way to go. I, I, there's no other way. Okay. Quick, uh, this next question is uh, directed to uh, uh, Ms. Perino. So the question is from Bart Wombouts, uh, and his, his, his question is, going back to political scene, you spoke about two major political parties dominating the landscape. Could you talk about potentially smaller political parties that are trying to bring about change and how the two dominant parties perceive them as well as the population, uh, uh, you know, uh, uh, role in that. And then the following one is about the culture aspect of how the culture in terms of tools used to reinforce, and this is from Adam Prezin, modern uh, fantasism, also visualizing of post-colonial culture, including religious as an interest uh, of, the of the politics in Mozambique. So it's a very loaded question, but uh, maybe I can add the second when you answer. Okay, I don't know if I really fully caught the second one, but I'll start with the first one. Yes, um, Mozambique is, um, is a political scene is growing. There is not just two political parties and that's the beauty of a, a democracy. Um, there is uh, MDM and there is uh, Nova Democracia. Um, there is other younger um, political parties that have really, um, that have contested the most recent elections that happened in October. Um, it's, it's, um, it's a positive sign to see new parties come up. It's a positive sign to see young people organizing in forming new parties because that means they really wanna be engaged in the solution. Uh, as IRI, we work with political parties um, practically <laughs> everywhere in the world. I would say I, would, could, I could ballpark it to 50 countries right now. So we know a lot about this scene. And uh, there are many people that want to make a difference. And also within Frelimo and Renamo, there's lots of uh, reformists. There's uh, people that want to do better and they want to learn new techniques as parties to provide solutions. Uh, it's not an automatic thing that just happens when you create a party that you know how to communicate and you know how to listen. Uh, and then the behavior that uh, politicians learn in political parties then gets, um, the benefit can be reaped also when they do gain um, an office. So for example, when you ask Mozambicans, um, how likely is it that you think your MP would listen to you? 37% of them would say never. Uh, what about a provincial assembly member at a lower level? 35% say never. What about a municipal assembly? So people in your town, 35% still say never. So it's uh, whatever they're learning as parties or their behavior as party is not really communicating into an engagement that is meaningful for the citizens, or at least the citizens are not perceiving it that way. So. Uh, Political, the political party scene has still a lot of development. This does not happen overnight. And there's a lot of growth to be, to be done. And um, I really hope that uh, people recognize the importance of these dynamics within political parties. Uh, Greg just uh, um, mentioned that how in Nampula, the governor brought together people from pol different, different political parties to build that trust for health reasons. So the benefit uh, is beyond just the who wins the elections or it's really about creating a debate, a public debate. And that's something that political parties tend to do. Yeah, I think uh, the question from Adam is uh, the role of culture influencing the uh, modern extremism, but also tied to post-colonial culture 
and its interest in the politics of Mozambique. So I think that's uh, what Mr. Um, but also the geography. Uh, do, okay, do the geographical current affiliations have relatively strong contributions on the future development of political situations in the country and its stability? I would love to invite Adam for a coffee or a telecoffee so we could discuss this. I don't know if I have all the answers, especially given the time. And I don't know if I've really thought about this completely, but I would say that um, there, culture is a very difficult word to, <laughs> to describe. Um, the culture in Mozambique is very oral. They are um, important oral traditions. So the, the culture within political parties can definitely embrace that more. I, I'm, and then when it comes to geographical strongholds of these political parties, um, Prilima has gained a lot more um, support in the, um, throughout the years. Um, so I think I gave like a statistic of 1999 just to give uh, some background. And right now I really have as the vast majority of MPs and therefore of also, and also of governorships. I, I am certain that they now control all governorship positions in the country. Um, I don't know if I really have a good answer for that. Perhaps Greg, you can save me. I don't think I can save you. That's a tough one. That's a tough one. Uh, Adam is invited as the next panelist. Okay, so I would have you follow up then, uh, Adam, with uh, Mr. Torino. So, Dr. Gregory, maybe you can answer the following uh, question, which is relating to the African uh, countries. You sometimes, and this is from Grace uh, Dothe, and she says, uh, you, you sometimes these African um, countries. Uh, see local insurgencies joining together with Islamic insurgencies. Do you foresee any future alliance, alliances between the low level Rinamo insurgency and this Islamic insurgency? I, I don't, uh, you, uh, I don't see it. I don't see it either. I'll, I'll be honest, I don't, you know, I obviously don't have a crystal ball. Um, so don't quote me if it does happen in 20 years time, but uh, I don't see it happening. One, they're very distant geographically, and uh, it goes back to the, um, the image that Greg explained earlier on. Maputo, Mozambique is really vast. He used the West Coast example, but I'm not familiar with California. Uh, oh. I, I like to say I, my fun fact is from Maine to Florida, so East Coast, but it works. <laughs> So I don't see them. I mean, what their requests are seem to be different. Uh, Renamo uh, wants a bigger stake in the, in the current political system, or at least that's what it seems. And they are demanding uh, a better implementation of what was agreed. They seem to be demanding, therefore, the decentralization policies. They seem to be demanding free and fair elections. They seem to be demanding less corruption. So their requests right now are, seem different, but uh, I don't know. Greg? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know. I, I, I don't see it. I mean, they're just, they're so far apart geographically and uh, their histories are so different. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, the other question is the role of the countries, uh, Tanzania and uh, others, uh, in, you know, particularly SADAC uh, being um, SADAC chair, uh, to raise the regional security dimensions of Cabo Delgado. Uh, so the questioner, uh, James Allen, wants to know what role basically these neighboring countries and SADC are playing in, in the security dimensions, trying to stabilize it, or what role do they play in this region? 
I think you answered this question earlier. Yeah, Sadek, I I haven't seen. I think Martina was answering that. I haven't seen anything um, from really Sadek on this. But you know, it's Mozambique has to lead the way to get um, these regional organization or continent-wide organization like the Africa Union uh, to lend a hand and. Um, you know, the African Union has this plan, end all civil wars by the end of 2020. Well, we're all, we're, we're getting there. <laughs> so uh, uh, there's some incentive for them to be involved uh, in all of that. And they have a lot of experience. And because it, Cabo de Gallo is as much a part of, of East Africa, even more than it is of Southern Africa, um, you know, it makes a lot of sense for the African Union to be involved. And Tanzania has a lot at stake here. Um, and its own history of dealing with uh, violent extremism um, over the last, you know, so yeah, and and um, I, maybe I should mention here is that some of the the local imams have also told us that um, there's this Kenyan who was actually killed. Um, uh, an imam named Rogo, and uh, he is Swahili speaker. He's based in Mombasa, and um, his well, at the time there were CDs and that would and would make their way to Mozambique in Swahili, and um, they would be played uh, at these Salafist mosques and the groups that would get together and study. So there is this. Remember that Swahili is also a lingua franca in Cabo Delgado, and it goes up the coast and all that. So there is that regional dimension of Swahili um, that Rogo appealed to, and you know, so that's something to to watch for, and why Tanzania is so important part of this solution uh, right now. Uh, Tanzania has been an important partner for Mozambique from the very beginning. Uh, there would be no Mozambique without uh, Tanzania for our liberation struggle. Um, I believe that the, the current government, the two current governments do have good relationships. So perhaps something is in the works. I am not privy to that. But I would encourage them to work together because I mean, it's as uh, Greg said, it's the problem does not stop because of the river. And, and, and also the issue of all the illicit economy that's taking place and that needs to be legalized. You know the, the commerce, you know, because it's so corrupting and things like that, and it, and a lot of it flows through Tanzania. So we, that needs to be dealt with. Great. Well, with that, uh, boss, uh, thank you so much for this, and uh, maybe you can say uh, last remarks, whatever you know you want to. Uh, th what's the takeaway in the last minute, if you both can, and then we'll wrap it up. We are about seven minutes. Uh, of our time. There are more questions, but I think maybe we'll try to answer them, maybe email or anything like that. So why don't you go first, Gregory? Okay. Um, Sorry, Martina, you're going to be next. All right. Um, God, we've said so much. I'm trying to <laughs> figure out how to pull it together into something. Um, I think it's, it's, I one of the things I think it's important to do is for um, President Nyusi and his allies to evolve their narrative about a solution for 
um, Cabo de Gallo. And, uh, you know, it, it hasn't evolved now, you know, but I think even more because they need to, to really articulate um, how they need to reinforce participatory development in the region as a solution. It's not, it, before it was criminal elements, they called them criminals and now they're called terrorists. Now, it, but, um, but there has to be a recognition that, that governance has to change there. And um, people have to feel that they can trust their own government again. And, uh, and that has to be built. Now that's a tough, tough thing to admit, but um, I, I think that would be real leadership. And, and finding the way to do that, I think would be important. And he is from that province. I mean, he has a home up in Mueda. And um, uh, so I think people hearing that, you know, that would be part of the solution. Um, I have uh, a list of 48 recommendations, but perhaps I will focus <laughs> them a little bit. I will try to prioritize the top 30. Sure. Everybody, listen up. <laughs> um, no, I think we spoke a lot about it, and it's about uh, governance. We go back to it. So what is governance? It's actually consultations. It's being broad-based. It's being transparent. Um, I, I don't know. IRI has worked in, in so many countries on this issue, and personally, I've also worked uh, with USAID on these issues, and there needs to be a plan. Yes, there needs to be a narrative, and then it's like, okay, once we agree on what the problem is, what is the plan, and what is the strategy? And the, the strategies are only going to work if you bring people together, and again, we, I say the word consultations, because uh, it, yes, the government needs to be part of these discussions, the private companies need to be part of these discussions, and I'm sure they want to, because it also benefits them for, to have less insecurity in that province. Um, citizens, um, civil society, media, political parties, everybody needs to be a part of it because as Mozambicans, we do not have as much information that is coming from that province, to be honest, to even make an informed judgment sometimes. And it's uh, right, right now, actually, unfortunately, in the past two weeks, the, the news have really circulated a lot more as it's, the activity seems to be picking up, unfortunately, in the province. Um, but a lot more uh, of that is needed. I do want to recognize that the government has established the Agency for Integrated Northern Development. I'll be honest, I haven't seen this written in English, so I don't know if I've translated it correctly, but it's Agencia de Desenvolvimento Integrado do Norte. And um, that, is a, that seems to be a good initiative. Uh, it, but of course, it's uh, only time will tell because I would like, I have so many questions about it. What are the funds going to be like? Where are they getting the funds? What is the transparency mechanism? What indicators will they be tracking? Uh, what will they be focusing on? And how are, gonna be, how are they gonna be making those decisions? Is there gonna be any duplication with the provincial government level? As a Mozambican, I have lots of questions, but as an initiative, I think it can be good. So the devil is in the detail though. And I would appeal to the international donors to keep supporting um, the government of Mozambique, and when I say international donors, I don't mean just um, development agencies, but also the international companies. And IRI has had this, um, this collaboration with different companies around the world as well that have contributed and have influenced uh, policy decisions um, 
at a central level or at a local level um, in terms of natural resource management. And that has been very effective. So overall, I am very optimistic about my country. Some days are hard when you hear and see images of people leaving their homes and uh, of um, civil society activists being shot or, or journalists being imprisoned or disappearing. So those are difficult days because that is not a democracy that, I, that my grandmother probably imagined I would be living in. Great. Well, thank you so much, uh, uh, Ms. Perino and Dr. Uh, Period, for this uh, lively, lively insights and uh, very passionate discussions. There's still more questions, but we're uh, done here. And I really, uh, I'm very delighted that we talked about all this and we've had uh, great questions from Facebook and our audience who've been participating and patiently um, listening and tuning in. So stay tuned, please, for our next uh, uh, events on uh, African Strategic Forum. And also, uh, please join me in thanking, uh, in your own way, wherever you uh, all are located, to, uh, to say great uh, words and thanks for our guests here, and also to thank our host, the Institute of uh, World Politics and uh, stay healthy and stay safe. And thank you so much. Thank you very much. Thank, thank you. Thank you. It was a wonderful opportunity. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you to the audience. We have 20 more questions to answer. Yes. <laughs> Great job. Keep the enthusiasm and next time we would have even a better event. We'll do a five hour event. Thank you. Okay. <laughs> All right. Bye-bye. Thank you.